Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. As many of our listeners know, People of the Pod recorded not just one, but two episodes in front of a live audience at AJC Global Forum 2023 in Tel Aviv. We also took the show on the road and did a few more interviews in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. You'll hear those episodes in the months to come. This week, we bring you our second live show in partnership with one of Israel's most popular podcasts, Israel Story. Welcome to the Second Life podcast recording here at AJC Global Forum 2023 in Tel Aviv. So on Monday, you heard two very different perspectives from two women who fled war-torn Ukraine and landed here in Israel, their new home. Today, you will hear the story of Israeli Moshe Kol, born Moshe Kolodny in 1911 in what is now Belarus. He was one of 37 founders of the State of Israel who signed Israel's Declaration of Independence. We're bringing you this live show together with another podcast that you might enjoy, Israel Story. Think This American Life, except it's This Israeli Life. Broadcasting in English since 2014, each episode introduces us to the wide array of characters who make up this diverse and dynamic democratic nation. In honor of Israel's 75th year of independence, the team at Israel Story set out to find the closest living relative of all 37 who signed Megillat Hatzmot in March. They began rolling out what I would call audio portraits of those 37 people, the portraits about who they met, what they could tell us about the 37 people who signed that founding document. They called the series Signed, Sealed, Delivered. And since March, we have met eight of Israel's founding mothers and fathers. Over the next several months, we will meet the other 29, including Moshe Cole, through the lens of his daughter. Today, you get a special preview through the lens of his grandson. With me to talk about Signed, Sealed, Delivered is the host of Israel's story, Mishi Harman, and the grandson of Moshe Cole, Aaron Peleg. Mishi, Aaron, welcome to People of the Pod, live in Tel Aviv. So, Mishi, I will start with you. The title is not Signed, Sealed, Delivered. It's Signed, Sealed, Delivered. What's with the question mark? Well, first of all, that's a good question. And it's always difficult to just uh, with your intonation to uh, indicate a question mark. But I think that this is a real question. When we began this series, it was actually before the last elections, which took place in November. And before this unprecedented wave of democratic a cry for democratic values in this country in light of the government's judicial reform. And we set out to ask, there is this founding document. Its status, its legal status is unclear. The best way, I think, to think of it is it's some sort of moral compass for our country. And You know, interestingly, the only action item that actually exists within the Declaration of Independence is to to formalize a constitution, which, of course, never happened. So we wanted to ask the question of what this document actually is in Israeli society, whether we live up to the promise 
of the words and the ideas that were described within it, whether we haven't, in which ways we have or we haven't. And we wanted to do this through the prism. I'm sure every citizen of Israel has something to say about this. And we wanted to do it through the prism of the descendants of the people who signed this document, who, with the strike of their pen, birthed this country. Actually, Moshe Kol was in Jerusalem on the day of the declaration. There were 11 out of members from Moetzet who were stuck in Jerusalem that was besieged and didn't participate in the ceremony, which was here in Tel Aviv. So I think your grandfather signed something like a month later during the first ceasefire. Mm -hmm. Different members of Moetzet were brought to Tel Aviv by plane, actually, to sign. But we wanted to ask, well, here we have this group of people, and it's an interesting group because... The first thing to say about it is that there are no non-Jews who signed Megillat Atzmaut. And that's, I think, a very important thing to keep in mind. But when you look at the group of these 37 signatories, it's a little bit like a pointillist painting. So when you look from afar, it looks like a pretty monolithic group of Polish and Ukrainian and Russian Labour Party operatives. But when you come closer, you actually see that there was a dazzling diversity among the signatories. And there were ultra-Orthodox Jews, and there were atheists, and there were revisionists, and there were communists. And there were people who were born in the middle of the 19th century, and there were people like Moshe Kol, who was the second youngest signatory, who was born in 1911, I think. Right. And they represented very different ideologies. And we wanted to see a, a generation and a half or two afterwards whether that diversity had expanded or shrunken. And to what extent these people who are closest to the ones who imagine the state, how they think about the place we live in today. Mm-hmm. So 25 signed in Independence Hall, just a little ways from here, actually, and here in Tel Aviv. 11 were in Jerusalem under siege, including your grandfather, Two women, hmm. uh, there, but, but there, were a, there was a lot of diversity uh, in the group. That said, I know that they saw oh, one in America. Right. forgot about one in America. How did they, they organized it alphabetically when they signed it, though, even right. though they signed it at With different times? With the exception times? of David Ben-Gurion, who signed first, everyone else signed alphabetically, and they left little spaces for them. Okay. Some of them signed terribly. Even though it was the founding document of the state, they couldn't sign in a right line. <laughs> and actually, right underneath Ben-Gurion is the signature of Daniel Oster, who was the mayor of Jerusalem. His surname is Oster, which begins with an Aleph, so he was the first to sign. And he recalled how Ben-Gurion berated him because his signature was just like some sort of scribble. And, and Ben-Gurion <laughs> said, don't you understand the historical importance of, of the document you're signing? I think your grandfather's mm-hmm. signature actually is sort of legible, right? I mean, yeah. you can, you can, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> you can read it. I don't know if yeah. you, if you sort of, when you were a boy, when you, if you went up to the <laughs> yeah, Declaration of Independence and sort of pointed to, to your grandfather's yeah. signature with pride or something, but <laughs> yeah. One of the women yeah. you interviewed said that her father or grandfather—I don't recall—but she remembers him practicing the signature oh, beforehand. It was, mm-hmm. it was an exciting, it was such an exciting moment. Mm-hmm. So going back to the organization, how did you organize the episodes and how did you decide the sequence of of how you would release the episodes? So we decided not to follow the order in which they appear on the scroll. We did start with David Ben-Gurion, an episode in which his grandson, who was really the closest person, I would say, to him in the family, including his Mm. own children, talked about 
about Ben-Gurion. And interestingly, uh, Yariv Ben-Liezer, uh, Ben-Gurion's grandson, has quite radical views about Israel today, and he thinks of Israel as an apartheid state and says that his grandfather would be very upset and that the the whole dream sort of went down the drain. So it was important to us in the next episode to present a pretty different view. So the next episode was the uh, son of Zerh Verhaftig, who was one of the leaders of the religious Zionist movement and is, you know, a sort of mainstream right-winger today. We do try to take into account, you know, gender. So even though there were only two female signatories, we obviously tried to interview as many women as we could who are descendants, some sort of political variation. We also do try to have episodes have a theme. So whether it's economy or socialism or tourism or, you know, Yemenite jewelry or women's rights. So it's not just about the about the signatory himself or herself, but also sort of about the things that were most important to that person. Yeah. yeah. As we were planning this episode, I tried my hand at tracking someone down from Israeli history and tracking down descendants. And I told your producer that I, it just made me even more impressed by <laughs> <laughs> the work that went into this project because it was it was just damn near impossible to find who I was looking for. Really? Tell us how you tracked everyone down. and Are there some really good stories about how you connected the dots and landed the right person? So all of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence are dead. The last one, who was the only one who was younger than your grandfather, Meir Wilner, died about 20 years ago. 14 of the 37 have children who are still alive. In fact, your grandfather, you were just telling me that all of his Mm -hmm. three daughters are still alive. So that was quite straightforward Mm -hmm. to find the children. When you start getting into grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it becomes quite messy. There are thousands of descendants Especially, there were only three uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi uh, signatories, but uh, they have many, many descendants. Um, And there it becomes an interesting question of who you choose, right? Because depending on who you choose, you can tell a very, very different story. And we always tried to prefer people who knew their ancestor and had firsthand experiences with them. But also to try, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but to try to demonstrate a variety of opinions today, too. So it is an interesting fact that the vast, and maybe you'll talk about this, but it is an interesting fact that the vast majority of the descendants of the signatories of the Declaration are in what you might call today the sort of center and center-left camp in Israel who are concerned about assaults on Israeli democracy and in fact, the Declaration of Independence has in recent months become rallying cry for the demonstrations. Suddenly, the Declaration of Independence, you can't, you can't escape. It, it's everywhere. The mm-hmm. municipality of Tel Aviv hung a massive replica on, on the building mm-hmm. in demonstrations. There are sort of re-signings of the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence. It's really become an icon, basically. And it was important for us to also show that there are descendants who think otherwise. And so, for example, in episodes that haven't yet come out, there are descendants who wonder why we even talk about Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. They say democracy is a, an imported concept. It's some sort of Hellenistic fossil. 
it's not a Jewish value. We don't think that that should even be something that we aspire to. Interesting. Aaron, how did you get the call that Israel's story was putting this together? Do you recall that day? The truth is I don't remember exactly <laughs> okay. because I've had the numerous uh, conversations with them. I think it was probably towards the end of last year uh, at some point. And again, as uh, Mishi said, it was before all these events happened here in Israel. Very happy because I thought, you know, as you say, now it's like the declaration is everywhere. You know, people talk about it all of a sudden. People, you know, it's, we see it everywhere. But for many years, I mean, it hasn't been much discussed, actually. Mm -hmm. I was kind of saying, ah, it was the 75th uh, anniversary of the State of Israel was coming up. There's some chance that we'll get something about it, but I wasn't expecting much. And I was uh, quite happy to have the opportunity to talk about the declaration. My grandfather, obviously. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your own upbringing and what Moshe Cole was like as a grandfather. <laughs> well, I was just telling uh, Mishi, I mean, quite a small family. My grandfather, uh, Moshe, or as we called him, Saba Misha, grandfather Misha, you know, had uh, three daughters, Aliza, Sari, who's my mother, and Yudit, who's the uh, younger one. And uh, altogether, you know, a bunch of uh, grandchildren, but uh, seven grandchildren, but that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. um, so we're a very close family. And Every Friday night, for example, we would all gather at my grandparents' house and have a Shabbat dinner there. That was like, you know, you had to be there. It wasn't, there was no discussion about it or negotiation. Mm -hmm. So even like my friends always knew that, you know, if we want to go out on Friday night, it's always after dinner at Saba Misha and uh, my grandmother's mm -hmm. Keta, Keta's house. And we spent a lot of time together. At the point when I was growing up already, my grandfather was obviously getting less involved with uh, state affairs. Um, when I was seven years old, he kind of retired, essentially, in 1977. So I had the opportunity to spend uh, time with them, actually both here and uh, also they took me abroad on a couple of trips with them. So uh, it was very uh, interesting. He was a very kind man, very interesting man. Um, I thought he was very smart. The Zionist project was kind of his uh, life mission, if you like. So he was always talking in some way about it. He was always involved, even after he retired, he was involved in, in various different projects. Some of them had to do with coexistence within Israel between, you know, Arabs, you know, Jews, Druze. He was very involved with the Druze community, actually. Um, he had good, good friends there. So even after his retirement, he continued to be active. So um, I, had the, I had the great privilege of kind of knowing him until I was 19 years old when he passed away and really uh, enjoyed, uh, I learned a lot from him. Yeah. yeah. When did you learn that he had signed the Declaration of Independence? I don't remember exactly, frankly. Okay. okay. And um, this is one of the interesting things is that I don't remember much discussion at home about the Declaration of Independence. And I think my mother and aunt as well, I don't think they, uh, I think they'll probably agree with that, even at earlier stage. And it's quite interesting that he never made a big deal about it, definitely. And I think that in a way, he, although obviously in hindsight it was, and even maybe at the time it was a big, big event, but to him it was, I think, and look, I hear I'm a bit kind of interpreting, uh, you know, this is my perspective on it. I think to him it was like, you know, kind of one necessary, uh, important obviously, but, you know, one necessary step in the big project. And the big project was, you know, establishing and building Jewish state, the state of Israel, 
But I don't think if you asked him probably what was the highlight of kind of was what was the most important thing you did in your in your life, I'm not sure he would have said signing the Declaration of Independence. For example, I he think he would have this, said bringing over a hundred thousand kids from exactly uh, from the diaspora. Yeah, so he was head of youth aliyah for 18 years right. after the Holocaust and mm-hmm. after the establishment of the state of Israel. To him, I think that was his kind of big thing he, he accomplished, mm-hmm. and more than anything mm-hmm. else. And he was even later a minister, a cabinet minister, and so he did you know many other things. But I think that was probably to him his kind of the highlight of his uh, career as Zionist. You know, and uh, the declaration was kind of, you know, one step, kind of a necessary step, but just, you know, one step along the way. So why was he invited to sign that day? Mm -hmm. So, and maybe Mishi, who's more of a historian, can shed more light on this. But uh, what I know is that, you know, the signatories were invited. It was based on kind of a uh, party basis or there were different movements, as Mishi mentioned, within Zionism or it wasn't specific Zionism because it really it was supposed to represent the people who who were living here actually ex uh, you know ex the non-Jews uh, right. which we know but uh, so they wanted even re- though interestingly there probably would have been non-Jews who would have agreed to have been part of this uh, effort I mean your your mm. grandfather was involved in the cause of Christian Arabs from the north who were removed from their villages in yeah. Kreit and Biram and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Those kind of people were mm-hmm. actually allies of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the Zionist movement mm-hmm. uh, in those days. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's possible, possible that uh, although Druze leaders are, you know. It's possible, although, I mean, it's difficult, I think, for us sitting here now right. to, to know because we have to remember this was like, it was very tense time, and you know we just had the uh, the war of independence uh, kind of breaking out and all that. So it's difficult to say, I think. Uh, but um, so he was, you know, a representative of one of the movements, one of the factions within the Zionists. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was part of the what they called at the time the uh, the general Zionists, Tzionim Klalim. Um, I think he was one of six representatives, I think, of the uh, general Zionists. And already at the time, he was a prominent leader within, you know, kind of centrist uh, Zionism, if you like. He was very early on in his life, he was already head of the, what was called the Norazioni, the uh, movement, the global leader of the uh, Norazioni from there. So he kind of moved, he was, he was, he attended several of the um, Zionist uh, congressions, the uh, conferences of, uh, along the years. He was already member of the executive committee of the Jewish agency at that point. Mm-hmm. So he was already, he had a certain position or statue within the uh, kind of Zionist movement. And uh, as one of the leaders of the general, Zion, general Zionists, he was invited to participate in Moetz uh, Da'am, which uh, later the, uh, sign- were the signatories of the uh, declaration. You said, I'm sorry, the first thing you said, he was the global leader of, and I, I didn't quite hear what you said. The Norazioni movement. What is that? It was a youth movement, one of the, uh, at the time, it still exists, actually, interestingly. Less so in Israel, actually, but in some countries, South America, I know, it still exists. Today, it's quite small. Then it was uh, a decent youth movement. Mm -hmm. That's actually how we met my grandmother, because my grandmother was involved in the Norazioni in Belgium, in Brussels. She was one of the heads of the Norazioni there, and he, as kind of part of his job as the global head of the movement, he was traveling and you know, went to see all these different, uh, all these different places. And, uh, and that's how he ended up in Brussels, where he met my grandmother. You mentioned earlier that some of the descendants had evolved, drifted away from their ancestors' ideologies, 
political perspectives or philosophies. I'm curious what your team found. Was it, was, did that account for most of the interviews that you did or a minority? I mean, did you find that in most of the interviews, the philosophies were kind of embedded in the family DNA? <laughs> it's interesting. Most people are quite similar to their fathers, grandfathers, uncles, mothers, and so on and so forth. And of course, I mean, the important thing to remember is that we're talking in a completely different world now, right? If you think about Israeli society today and you think about our chances of ever agreeing on a single document or a single vision of this state, that's, you have to be crazy, basically, to think that that's possible. I mean, we live in such a fragmented and fractured society today that getting a group that is in some way representative of the country to agree on what this country actually is, what this project that we call Israel really is, today seems almost unimaginable. And I think, honestly, that it was pretty unimaginable at the time, too. I think that they had other things going for them that in the background that allowed them to reach this moment of agreement, which, you know, there were... As Iran just said, we were in the middle of a war, and it seemed like an existential war, right? We were going to live or die. This all came together very, very quickly. You know, people understood that this was this opportunity. The British mandate was about to end. There was going to be a power vacuum. The Zionist movement had an opportunity to declare statehood, which was something that, you know, in the Jewish psyche had been a dream for 2,000 years, 1,900 years, I don't know. (laughs) And they weren't going to, there was some sense of sort of, I would say, communal responsibility, which, you know, there's this word in Hebrew that is difficult to translate, really, which is mamlachtiyut, really, some sort of sense of of being part of a larger state collective that wasn't going to allow them, even if they disagreed with a specific phrasing or a specific idea, to be the one saying, no, I'm going to be the sole naysayer in this otherwise historic opportunity. And that's what got a lot of people on board, right? I mean, otherwise how... And, you know, there are all these stories about sort of vague phrasings, whether they refer to God or don't refer to God, or whether they can be interpreted in other ways and so on and so forth. Today, we're a much more blunt society. Today, people (laughs) would want things to be said very, very clearly. And we just, unfortunately, and and Iran, I'd be interested to hear what, what you think, but I don't think that as a collective we share any clear understanding of of what we can agree on. At least it doesn't seem that way today. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, I, I agree. It's much more uh, challenging. At least, at least we agree. Yeah, we agree. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah. But look, I, I still remain optimistic, I must say. Maybe it's my nature, but I do think that, you know, we've seen, you know, the huge amount, what we've achieved here in such a short period of time. And... I do think that, you know, in some ways the values and political views are clearer now than they were back then, as you say, because of everything that was going on at the time. And they were really occupied with kind of let's build this state more than anything else. You know, they they put a lot of other things aside, frankly. It's not that they didn't have views about economy, about, you know, they had views about other things, about education, economy. It's just that they said, let's put this aside for now. And let's focus on the main project or the main mission. And uh, they hope to get to the other stuff. Well, they actually promised to put together a constitution, which I guess the truth is it was, frankly, with historical perspective, I think it was very difficult because they actually set a date, I think. They said until the, uh, you know, the declaration was signed in May and they said by October, October, 1st of October, something like that. So a very short period of time after they already want to have a constitution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think... 
that probably wasn't realistic. Also because there was a war going on and you know, they were occupied with you know, just let's, you know, existence or survival, let's say. But also because you know, views were not really clear on respect on many different issues and they didn't have the opportunity to discuss them really yet. The United States, for example, you know, putting together a constitution, A, you know, I mean, that took a A, you know, the constitution came really only, I think, like more than 150 years after people landed with the Mayflower. So there was a long time where they were already living together. And also then they did, you know, there was a very serious job in putting together the American constitution. And here they, they were trying to put it together in the middle of a war and it, it just wasn't realistic and... I think that this is particularly interesting for American listeners because, you know, 75 years um, is a long time, but it's also almost no time at all. Um, and what we feel lucky about with this project is that we're able to still touch these people who, um, before they sort of drift into the realm of becoming historical figures in in in, in books and research papers and stuff like that, and we can we can talk to um, to sons and daughters who remember these people as, as, as real mm-hmm. as real people and I think you know that's unimaginable obviously in the American uh, context um, and we tend to um, we tend to attribute so much importance to phrasings and to wordings of, of these kind of declarations of uh, and 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 we forget that at the end of the day, these are people who are writing writing these words within within specific uh, historical contexts and bringing themselves and uh, you know um, uh, Moshe Kol, for example, is signing signing his name on 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 this scroll of independence. Uh, you know, a few years, four years, I don't know after after his parents and sister are murdered in the Holocaust. And that was the story of many of the signatories. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, as Iran was saying, it was in the middle of the war and 1% of the population was killed in this war. I mean, these, and, and they're writing this, these words um, both as, with, without sort of knowing what we know today, that 75 years hence Israel is going to be around and Israel mm-hmm. is going to be this thriving uh, country with and cantankerous democracy and uh and and uh you know it was i think in many ways sort of a prayer or a wish of what um uh, of what this place could be many of them came from you know socialist backgrounds or uh, from from small villages and and stuff like that and suddenly found themselves here in in this in this radically different environment than anything that they had known previously. And they were trying to imagine, well, what 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 can we imagine a just society being? And in, another interesting thing is that sort of patriotic symbols like the flag and mm. like the Declaration of Independence, which for years had been essentially owned by the right in this country, have in the last year... Um, Less so the declaration. The declaration yeah. was was a little yeah. more marginal, right? Yeah. But yeah. Um, have have been have been completely um, appropriated by mm-hmm. the uh, by the protest the, 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 the protest movement, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go mm-hmm. um, here to Kaplan on 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 uh, Saturday night, which I mm-hmm. strongly recommend everyone to do, whether you agree with the with with the protests or not, just because it's a really it's a, it's an incredible incredible sight um, mm-hmm. for anyone who cares about democracy. Um, to see what these protests are like, you'll see basically a sea of flags, uh, of Israeli flags, and it's, that's a, mm. a, for me that's a fascinating development. I don't, I don't know how. But you doesn't it belong to both? 
against the Declaration. No, it definitely it does. No, it does. <laughs> but you know, I mean, uh, but the, the, the kind of the flag was, you know, is always perceived as a bit kind of a nationalistic kind of, uh, mm. has this kind of flavor to it. And, uh, but yeah, but you're right. Yeah. It obviously belongs to, yeah. to both. Just, yeah. They're just embracing it mm. in different ways. I guess one question purposes. that I would have to you about who things belong to is whether, um, sorry, <laughs> I don't know if you, um, is whether being the grandson of one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence makes you feel different about your own ownership of this place, um, whether it sort of casts a shadow of responsibility. I mean, I don't think I'm, you know, any position of privilege or entitlement different from uh, anyone else. I happen to be his grand, you know, grand, grandson. Um, but um, but what I think I do have, which maybe some 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 other people don't, is I, I do have I think a, a good sense of history at least, uh, and kind of understanding you know where we've come from you know etc. And I think that's something that sometimes um, I see missing you know with other people. Maybe that gives me a slightly different uh, perspective on things. So, for example, I see you know because we're, we're the generation that was, was already born into the state of Israel. For us, it was like a given, right? It's self-evident. It's given. And I see, especially with people who like us, can some people can um, you know it does uh, make me angry when they very uh, when some people might say uh, you know I don't like what's going on I'm I'm just going to go elsewhere and to me like that makes me angry but I don't think it makes me angry because I'm the son of Moshe Kohl I think it makes me angry because I I think at least I have an understanding of you know what's been put into this project already. And, you know, the uh, efforts that have been made, and obviously, you know, people have given their lives as well. I mean, soldiers uh, for, for us to be where we are today as well. So just kind of thinking that, ah, you know, Israel is, will always be there for us. Even if we, we, go, we go elsewhere, then we decide to come back, right? Uh, if we want, we can always come back. But no, that's not the case. Israel wasn't always here. I mean, you have to understand that we have a, we're in a very sp- special uh, uh, situation or position where we have the state of Israel, um, it's such a valuable thing. We can't just give it up, you know, just like that. Okay, and you can't just take it for granted that we'll, we'll be here or that it's here. That we'll be here when you decide one day to come back from wherever you're going. Maybe, maybe you don't feel that Israel belongs to you, but do you belong to Israel? Maybe that's do you definitely? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That's definitely the case. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you ever? Mm. And I actually I, I address this question mm. to both of you. Wouldn't it be great if we could make plans? But uh, mm-hmm. if you had complete control over the universe uh, and and your future, do you foresee ever leaving Israel? Iran. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't. I, again, it's very difficult to know what the future where the future holds. Right. But uh, I, I see Israel as my home. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to go abroad and come back. Um, and part of the decision to come back was, you know, because because this is my home, you know, mm-hmm. and my home also consists of the fact that my family is here, obviously. So it's a family, family reasons as well. But also, definitely, also Zionism played a role in my decision. I, I've lived um, twelve years um, outside of Israel, but you know, but I, my my assumption was always that you know it's just this is a, I'm there for a limited period of time and I'm going to come back at mm-hmm. some point, mm-hmm. and that's actually what happened. And um, so, to me, to me, this is kind of this is where 
you know, Israel is, is where, where it's the place for me. Yeah. Mishi? Um, so I don't totally know what the word Zionism really means um, today. Um, and something I think about a lot, my grandparents um, who were of the same generation of Iran's grandparents um, and also very active though, in the Zionist movement and in building the state, mm-hmm. um, um, though not quite the blue-bloodedness of, of signing the declaration, but um, they met in the early 30s. They were both students um, in, they were both British, and they met because my grandfather, uh, who was later on uh, Israel's ambassador to the U.S. for many, many years and the president of the Hebrew University, um, he was the um, he was the head of the student uh, the Zionist Student Union at, at Oxford, and they met at a debate in which he debated my grandmother, who was the head of the anti-Zionist Student <laughs> Union at the London School of Economics, and she was an anti-Zionist not because she had any particular beef with the Zionist movement, but because she was an internationalist and she didn't believe mm-hmm. as many others uh, in in the in the years between the wars. Believe she didn't believe in, in in the concept of nation states, mm-hmm. and um, of course, then spent the remainder of her life in the service of this particular nation state. <laughs> but um, um, but she, uh, I I uh, she was a tremendous presence in my life. She lived to be almost a hundred and uh, lived across the street from us. So uh, um, I um, I'll just share with you very quickly that in. Um, one of the sort of formative memories of, of my life is that in 2006, she was already a very elderly woman in her mid-90s. Um, sh- we were, and, and not totally um, with it all, all the time at that point, we were watching television and it was the uh, together and it was the second Lebanon uh, war. And she sort of perked up out of nowhere and she said... Look what a strange thing we're talking about. There are hills to the north of here that have vegetation and have wildlife and have flowers. And we've drawn a line in the middle of those hills. And we call one side of that line Israel and the other side Mm -hmm. of that line Lebanon. And there are people living on both sides of that line. And what the TV is saying is um, that when Moti Cohen's life is disrupted or he's injured, um, because a Katyusha missile uh, fell on his building or something, we need to be deeply, deeply sad. And when Ahmad Salman's life is disrupted because um, the Israeli Air Force bombed his village or something, no one's saying that we need to be happy, but we can basically be kind of indifferent. Um, and she said, I don't know Moti Cohen, and I don't know Ahmad Salman, but I'm equally saddened by by the hurt that both of them are feeling. And that was that statement was something that stayed stayed with me and stays with me till till today. So my connection to this place, I would say, is less from an idealistic point of Zionism in in sort of the classic sense of Jewish self determination, um, and more from the fact that I was born here. And I grew up here, and the park in which I played soccer growing up still exists, <laughs> and the streets in which I, you know, walked hand in hand with my first girlfriend still exist, and my family are here, and my friends are here, and I like the food that, you know, that I am accustomed to eating my entire life. And in some fundamental way, this is my home. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
Madison, Wisconsin or, or, or London are not my home in the same way. So that's what makes me want to um, be here and, and in the spirit of the Declaration of Independence, try to, to make our country live up to the lofty and beautiful ideals that, that it set out to, uh, to achieve. It's beautiful. Both of you. <laughs> Both beautiful answers. Um, I, before we go, uh, I, I do want to talk about, you've mentioned it a couple times, Mishi, the absence of God and democracy, those words from the Declaration. And if, I'm just curious if you could both share your thoughts on, does that matter? <laughs> and, and, and is it mattering today? If, if those words were embedded in the document, would anything be different today, possibly? I think the absence of the word God was very intentional, and uh, there's a lot of historical historical documentation about about that. And I think the absence of the word democracy was less intentional um, in that, um, I mean, I, I don't want to bore you with a lot of technicalities, but do- democracy did appear in previous drafts of, uh, of, of the Declaration of Independence and was ultimately taken out, but not because I think that anyone had any sense that they wanted to... Um, the less, question open. Less, yeah, the, mm-hmm. the, the intent of Israel being a democracy, I think it's very clearly stated that mm-hmm. Israel will um, come into existence based on the, on the uh, guidelines of the United Nations and the partition plan that called for the creation of two, demo, two demo, uh, democratic entities here. I think uh, the Declaration of Independence talks about equality and about uh, freedom of religion and... Um, and uh, and all the main tenets of democracy. Um, so I, I think that um, I think that the Declaration of Independence does, as a document, does does um, appeal to a, to a wide variety of people even today. I think that you know it would be more difficult today to write a, a founding document that. In the, in the current makeup of Israeli society that doesn't refer to God and doesn't refer more clearly to, to the divine. Um, but there, there is some, uh, impl- it is implicitly, God is implicitly right. uh, present. I think there's a... That's uh, what we said. Exactly. Right, so which was sort of a very yeah. famous kind yeah. of <laughs> Mapai-style compromise yeah. 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 of yeah. saying things and not saying them at mm-hmm. the same time. And maybe as a last thing to say, which opens up a whole other conversation, we, you, if you maybe want invite us again once to the to, to the podcast, we can discuss. Is that you know the, the Declaration of Independence set in place um, a notion which I think to most signatories did not seem like a contradictory notion of a Jewish and democratic state. Mm-hmm. And I think we're grappling till this day with whether those terms are contradictory, whether a democracy can be a Jewish. Uh, uh, state, whether a Jewish state can be a democracy, I think all of them uh, signed the declaration thinking that this was a possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that they thought that these would, that these terms would come uh, to be, to, to, to clash in the ways that they, that they have. Um, and I think till today, we're dealing with that legacy mm-hmm. of this sort of impossibly simple and yet impossibly difficult um, um, uh, couple of coupling of terms um, which 
we're now living in a moment in which we're trying to understand whether whether they whether the signatories were right, whether mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. is a possibility. Mishi, I hope you don't mind me asking you a personal question to close us out, and that is, um, I know you lost your father shortly before the debut of this series. Uh, it is dedicated in his memory, and you just shared a story about his mother, I believe. That was that was your paternal grandmother. I'm curious, as your team was having all of these conversations, you and your team were having these conversations with children and grandchildren about the people they love, their legacies, did that shape any of the conversations you had with your father in his final days? Because you were working on it simultaneously. Sure. My father would have loved this series very much because it represented his Israel, an Israel that's also Iran's Israel, which is an optimistic Israel, which sees the good in people and the um, potential and the dream of this uh, project that we began here. Um, I think it would have, it, he would have been very interested. He knew many of these characters who, mm-hmm. who were talking about. Um, I think he would have also been saddened to hear that a lot of them are dismayed um, by, by where things have gone. And I think he was as well. And he was the greatest uh, Zionist that I could imagine in that he really believed you know, Zionism is a sort of catchphrase in, in which you can insert almost anything that you that you want into it. But I think his most fundamental belief, which he attributed to the to the heart of Zionism, was was a belief in equality and a belief that people are people, and a belief in education, mm-hmm. and a belief in the spirit of the Jewish people, um, and in this really miraculous um, entity that we've created that allows us to, to ask these fundamental, difficult questions about our past. Um, and for me, it's very, very meaningful that um, able to dedicate this series to his memory. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Thank you for the series. I encourage everyone here to listen to episodes of... And the next episode that's coming out on Monday is about Moshe Kol. Oh, oh. perfect timing. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank so you very much. much. Thank you, audience. Thank you. Thank you. To listen to Israel Story's special series on the Declaration of Independence or any other regular episode... You can subscribe to Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. Just don't forget to also subscribe to People of the Pod and our award-winning series, The Forgotten Exodus. To learn more about Moshe Kol, here's a sneak peek of Israel Story's interview with his daughter, Yehudit Kolinbar, the former director of the museum's division of Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. He was eating grapefruit and he was crying because for him it represented, wow, we are in Israel and we have a grapefruit that we ourselves grew it. He was very proud and happy with the feeling that they are building a place for the Jewish people. That's Yodit Kolinbar, the daughter of Moshe Kolodni, who for 19 years headed the Jewish Agency's Youth Immigration Division and was responsible for bringing more than 100,000 unaccompanied minors to Israel from 85 different countries. Despite being among the founders of at least seven kibbutzim and five youth villages, and later on holding senior cabinet posts, 
he considered that immigration effort to be his greatest public achievement. It was, he once said, a project that had no equivalent in the annals of human history. To listen to the rest of the episode, head to the link in our show notes. Our thanks once again to host Mishi Harman and the staff at Israel Story for sharing these incredible stories with us at AJC Global Forum 2023 in Tel Aviv. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 